Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, in January of this year, hundreds of Holocaust survivors gathered at Auschwitz to mark the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the largest Nazi-run internment camp. The survivors and their children rededicated themselves to remembering the horror of the Holocaust, even as a Pew study confirms that nearly three in 10 Americans say they are not sure how many Jews died in the Holocaust. With anti-Semitism resurging in the United States and around the world, how important is it that survivor stories be told? And what should the next generations do to keep their stories alive? Later in the show, questions about health care, but scared to go to the hospital because of coronavirus? Text a nurse. A locally-based telehealth app is making an online connection to nurses here and across the country. You know, one of the benefits that we have with over a 1,000 nurses on our platform is that we get to become very selective with which nurses are on our platform. And that means that, you know, maybe if you're in Massachusetts, maybe the best nurse for you to talk to is somebody that's actually in California right now, basically making it so that people have better access to care. But first, joining me now, three authors whose lives have been shaped by the Holocaust. They share their stories with us. Helen Epstein, journalist, author, and editor of her late mother's memoir, Francie's War, A Woman's Story of Survival. Welcome, Helen. Hello, Kelly. Also with me, Bernice Lerner, senior scholar at Boston University's Center for Character and Social Responsibility, and the author of All the Horrors of War, A Jewish Girl, A British Doctor, and The Liberation of Bergen-Belsen. Hello, Bernice. Hello, Callie. And Sylvia Ruth Gutman, public speaker and author of her memoir, A Life Rebuilt, The Remarkable Transformation of a War Orphan. Hi, Sylvia. Hi, Callie. I'm so delighted to have all of you. I thought I would start this way. I think it's pretty clear that those who do know something about the Holocaust learned it from, let's say, culture, pop culture, really. So I wanted to play a clip from the film Schindler's List that probably went the furthest in trying to explain exactly what was happening in those internment camps. Uh, This is a scene in which a commandant, played by Ralph Fiennes, the actor, orders the execution of the Jewish engineer in charge of construction of the barracks. Shoot her. Herr Kommandant, I'm only trying to do my job. Yeah, I'm doing mine. Sir, she's foreman of construction. We're not going to have arguments with these people. Shoot her. Here, on my authority. It will take more than that. I'm sure you're right. So I wanted to play that clip because that was a fictional reinterpretation of the facts. And the stories that you tell, two of you about your mothers and another of you about yourself, are the facts. And they're just as horrific as that scene that we've heard. 
But it was important for you all to put this down and to make sure that we knew these stories. Bernice, I'm going to start with you. For a long time, you didn't think anybody would be interested in your mother's story. What finally changed your mind about making sure it got told? Well, (laughs) there were a lot of memoirs being written by survivors. I wasn't sure. I mean, people were interested. My mother has spoken to more than 250 school groups, and there's been a lot of interest in her story in recent years. But I didn't set out to write her story. I set out to write the biography of the liberator, the man most prominently associated with the liberation of Bergen Bells and Glenn Hughes. And when I started to write his biography, first I tried to figure out Who was he? Was he biography worthy? Who was this man? What decisions did he make? What did he bring to the experience? What happened to him after? How was it? How did it change him? And I sought to find out uh, more about him. And I was writing his biography. And it was then that people kept saying to me, well, what about your mother's story? And I sort of resisted it for a long time. It was painful. But then I had the idea of writing a dual biography, of combining my mother's story and Glenn Hughes' story. So that's how it came about. And my mother shared with me stories from a young age. So I pretty much knew the framework and had filled it in over decades with anecdotes that I heard repeatedly about her. So I was carrying her story with me. I, I knew a lot, and I had some more questions, which is what led me to Glenn Hughes, because At one point, at the end of the war, she had fallen unconscious. She did not know how she was, Mm. how she was saved. And that's when I started to really explore the liberation and Glenn Hughes and fill in the details I did not know. So yours, I should mention, is the first book to pair a survivor's story, that would be your mom, with a liberator's story. A lot of people don't know specifically the names of liberators who came in and released all the people who were interned in those camps. And that's extremely important. And Helen, let me go right to you, because yours is a story about your mom. I should mention that Bernice's mom is still alive. Your mom has passed. But it was also singularly important that you tell her story. Well, actually, I don't tell her story. She tells her own story. Uh, this book is this book was written by my mother in 1974, and the manuscript was rejected by every publisher it was sent to, and she put it away and uh, said, since I was starting out my career as a journalist back in 1974, she said, look, you use it for your work, and so I did use it. I used it in two books, Children of the Holocaust and Where She Came From, which is a multi generational story of the women in my family. And I also put it away. And it was only last year after Me Too and after a whole bunch of unrelated developments that I decided to look at the manuscript again. And I thought this would be a really good resource for academics, particularly people in trauma studies and women's studies and Holocaust studies. So I took it out and I asked some professor friends of mine to look at it. And they all said, this is great. You should sell it to a commercial publisher. And I said, oh, I don't think so. I think it would be an academic resource. And much to my surprise, they were right. And it's now being published in eight countries. But it's her work, not mine. Um, She wrote it in English. It's almost exactly as she originally wrote it. I just touched it up here and there, and I chopped it up into chapters. But otherwise, it's all her words. Well, what I meant to say was you're the vehicle for telling her story. And you've explained why it took you so to this point to really think that other people would be interested in what she had to say. And her singular story, I think when a big incident happens, something that feels so overwhelmingly historical, it may be that 
individuals feel like, well, I don't know that my little story adds up to, you know, the the enormity of the event itself. But in fact, it's these small stories, these individual stories that keep the rest of us understanding exactly, in this case, the horror and the barbarism that was involved in it and, and why we need to remember. Sylvia, to you, you've told your own story and you really suffered trying to put together all the pieces of your story because you had lost it, really, after living through some of that horror. Yeah, I have no memory of the first seven years of my life. So all of that were stories that were told to me by my older sister, Rita. And I don't remember the internment camp. I don't remember my mother, who actually was my first rescuer. Because initially you were told by your relatives that it was important for you just to forget this, that, you know, even if you could remember something, it was not important. Well, even America said that was the message I got when I came to this country in 1946. Forget your past, move on, be normal, fit in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't know how to do that until I was 54 years old and I suffered a post-traumatic stress breakdown and suddenly... I'm with this wonderful therapist who was the first person to call me a hidden child. I was 54 years old, and we tried to have me remember those first seven years, but I couldn't, Mm -hmm. and that's when I started to write it down. And it took me a long time to write this book because it was hard. It was really hard. Of course. Because these events that I talk about happened more than 50 years ago. And I couldn't find a publisher. Nobody wanted to publish this book until I published it. And it has been having huge success. And I've spoken in thousands of school. And I went back, I went to Germany. I want to come back to Germany and its importance to you and your story in just a minute. But let me go back and do another sort of circle around here. Bernice, I'm going to start with you again. If you could just tell one story from your mother's story that just really gives people an example of why it became important to make sure that this was written down and told to others. I think uh, it's all very important to know and understand. Sylvia and Helen and I are just we're just telling the stories about individuals, but uh, there were so many more, of course, so many lives that were lost and so many stories that will never be told. So my mother was in Bergen-Belsen. It was the British had already come in. They had liberated the camp. It was April 15th, 1945, the month of March. More than 17,000 people had died there. People were dying of epidemic typhus tuberculosis, dysentery. It was impossible for the liberators to know which disease people had. It was just people were, they were just dead everywhere and piles around the camp. The British came in and it took them a few days to get organized. And on April 18th, finally, the 11th Light Field Ambulance came in and they pitched a dump of tents all over right near the dung-filled barracks. They were just filled with excrement. People were so sick. There were no sanitary facilities. So my mother was in a hut. She was anyone who could walk, could get out of the hut and go into these tents. And they just wanted to better be able to get some food or water to the very, very sick who were just laying there in the huts. So my mother could still walk a little bit. She went into a hut with her sister. She was with her sister and three other girls who were sisters. 
one of them was sort of made the rules up and the rule was every day a different girl had to pull down the flap of the tent and it came my mother's turn on the third or fourth day and she couldn't get up she was really sick and she couldn't get up so the the older girl said you can't get up okay you have to go back to the hut you don't belong here if you can't do your duty you have to go back so she went back she crawled back on all fours she couldn't walk anymore she was very, very sick, very feverish. She, by that point, had tuberculosis. And she went back to the hut, and her back was aching, and she had tried to reclaim her spot against the wall of the hut. And her compatriots, her fellow inmates, beat her up with whatever remaining strength they had. Everyone sitting in that area beat her, which just pummeled her until she fell unconscious. So... That is a story she would not blame them or point a finger or anything. She said we were all reduced to an animal-like state. Everybody was in such Mm -hmm. terrible shape. So that's a story from my mother, and that's when she fell unconscious, and that was after the British came in. So the uh, liberation was very complex and took place over a long period of time till this typhus was stemmed. Anyway, so that's one story about my mother. Okay. Helen Epstein, give me one story about your mother. Well, I think since I have her book, I'd like to read read you the beginning of it because it's really about anybody. This is not about people that are different from you and me. These are people who are just like you and me. And here she is 22 years old. She's a young fashion designer in Prague, and this is the way she started her book. It was a hot day in the first week of September 1942, and the industrial palace of Prague was teeming with people. Most were lying or sitting on the floor. Others were wandering around in a stunned daze. I was 22 and lying with my head in my mother's lap. I had just had a tonsillectomy. I hadn't eaten for a few days and was having trouble breathing. My father was walking around, hoping to find out what was in store for us. A group of SS men were storming in and out, yelling orders and rounding up groups of men to clean the latrines. They made a point of picking out the most distinguished-looking men in the crowd, the men wearing glasses. My father was one of them. When they told me that my parents and I had been called up for a transport, the nurse said, we can get you out of it because of the tonsillectomy. I thought this over, and then I said, I'm not letting them go alone. They're too old, and they don't have anyone else. My mother was 60, and my father was 65. I couldn't visualize these people going alone anywhere. And there was an egotistical motivation, too. My husband was already gone. I would have been left all alone. And by September 1942, I was so fed up with all the restrictions in Prague that I thought any change of scene would be a relief, no matter what was waiting on the other end. I was always like that, unfortunately. My interest in politics then was non-existent, and I was only vaguely aware that all four of my grandparents were Jewish. I was carefree, slightly spoiled, and mainly interested in dancing, my business, flirting, and skiing, in that order. And I read that just to give you a sense that Mm. this could happen to you. This isn't about Jews in the 1930s. This is about almost all of us under any circumstances. And my mother believed it could happen anywhere, anytime. Mm. 
That's Helen Epstein. She's reading from her mother's story, Francie's War, A Woman's Story of Survival. Now, back to you, Sylvia Ruth Gutman. You talked about your sister earlier because you're really talking about your own experience when you've spoken to students and written your book. And I wonder if you would share one of the stories about your sister and you back during that horrific time. So I have to share the story. So uh, we were hiding my 34-year-old mother, my 40-year-old father, 10-year-old Richas, 9-year-old Susie, and I am three. And we are hiding in the house of the Buho family in Nye, France. We were arrested. My father was bedridden. He was quite ill. And they had no papers because Hitler stripped them of their German citizenship. And there was no work. There was very little food. And the French Vichy police arrested us and took my mother and her three daughters down to the square. Buses were waiting, and we, we were put on the bus, and then we went on to a train. And the train tracks led directly into the French camp, the internment camp, in the village of Rivesault. One morning, Mama came into the children's barrack. We slept on straw, lice-filled straw, and uh, told us to get dressed. There would be a roll call. And she said, well, I'll meet you outside. And the three of us walked outside, and it was a huge square, and it was lines of people and the French guard was shouting instructions through his megaphone, when your name is called, step out from the line and walk to the end of the square where the cattle cars, because that's what they were, will take you to a work camp in the east. That's my guest, Sylvia Ruth Gutman, telling the story of how she and her family were hidden and then interned. Another horrific story from 75 years ago and more. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are authors Helen Epstein, Bernice Lerner, and Sylvia Ruth Gutman. We're talking about Holocaust remembrance and the resurgence of anti-Semitism. Let me play a clip for all of you from... January, this is when 40 world leaders congregated in the Warsaw Ghetto Square in Yad Vashem, Jerusalem, to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Holocaust. And this is Britain's Prince Charles giving his remarks. The scale of the evil was so great, the impact so profound, that it threatens to obscure the countless individual human stories of tragedy, loss, and suffering of which it was comprised. That is why places like this and events like this are so vitally important. So I wanted to play that to demonstrate that it's to your point, Helen, about your mom, it could be anybody. And the world has taken note late that these horrific events have to be commemorated and have to be acknowledged. And we need to know that history. So I want to talk to you all about just what it takes to make sure that this history gets remembered, because we're at a time where, as I referenced that Pew study early on, where a lot of people have just lost 
the actual memory of the event. Let, let's not even talk about the meaning, but just they don't even know it, it happened. And I wonder how you feel about that. Bernice? It worries me and it saddens me. And it's one of the reasons that I really worked so hard on the book and really persisted in trying to get it published and out there. And I'm grateful for others who've done the same. Um, and I'm grateful for all the testimonies that have been given. I think Steven Spielberg did an amazing job with survivors of the Shoah Visual History Project with that foundation out of the University of Southern California uh, because we still have survivors walking this earth. Most of them have died, but we still have some. And even with those eyewitnesses here, people don't know. There's so much ignorance. And I think it's such an important thing to, for young people to be learning about and to be able to really empathize and to also uh, put themselves in the place of other people who are suffering today because it still goes on and on. It's the saying never again it doesn't mean much when we've had so many, we've had genocide since in Rwanda, Cambodia, and all the suffering now in Syria. That was Bernice Lerner, and her book is All the Horrors of War, A Jewish Girl, A British Doctor, and the Liberation of Bergen-Belsen. Thank you, Bernice. Sylvia, I, I wanted to return to you because you told us what happened to you as in your family as you were taken to the internment camps. But one of the other amazing things that happened in your life as you put together your story of, of what happened to you specifically during that horrific time was your reconciliation with the people who you had deemed to be at fault for this, the Germans. You moved to Germany and began a reconciliation process. And that's part of the remembering. Can you talk about that, why that was important? You know, my, both of my parents were murdered. And I went to Germany. I was not born in Germany. I was born in Antwerp. And I spoke to thousands of schoolchildren and hundreds of senior groups, and I went with hate and was met with love. They opened up, they showed me their shame and their guilt, and the young people had no reason to feel guilty because it was their ancestors. So they made me an honorary German citizen because I spoke for those who cannot speak. And I opened up. It was actually healing. They healed and I healed. And I came back to America in 2008, a very different woman, a different human being. I was stronger. And I realized that probably an act of forgiveness had been at its core. Mm -hmm. That's my guest, Sylvia Ruth Gutman. She's the author of her memoir, A Life Rebuilt, The Remarkable Transformation of a War Orphan. I think that uh, Sylvia Ruth's story, Helen Epstein, gets back to your point about some of this could be any of us, and we have to think about it. I'm reminded of something that the director of the Auschwitz-Bergenau State Museum told the New York Times in January. He said, more and more, we seem to be having trouble connecting our historical knowledge with our moral choices today. I can imagine a society that understands history very well, but does not draw any conclusion from this knowledge. And I hear you saying we, we need to be drawing conclusions from the knowledge. Right. I think, first of all, I think that forgetting Holocaust history is part of 
people all over the world forgetting all of their history. I mean, if you ask young people in Europe or in Africa or in Asia about things that happened 50 years ago, most of them have no idea what they're t- what, what 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 happens. So I don't think Holocaust history is particular in this way. But I think what young people today need to know is that it can happen to anybody, any group that is victimized for any reason. And I know that when I was growing up in New York City in the 1950s and 1960s, I identified very strongly with African Americans because I saw in their civil rights struggle my own parents' civil rights struggle during the Second World War. And I think for people who grew up in the 70s and 80s who watched gay people struggle in the United States, they could they could identify in the same way. And there's never any dearth of people who are scapegoated or victimized anywhere in the world. I mean, even today, you open the newspaper, you'll find any number of groups being victimized on every continent. So this is not history. This is reality. And I think the only way to make people understand that it's about them, they themselves, and not about others, is by reading. And um, that's one of the reasons I became a writer, and that's one of the reasons that I worked on my mother's book. So to all of you, what does this resurgence of anti-Semitism, we've seen examples here, horrific examples here in the United States, but around the world. Well, where does that leave you? What, what does that say about all of us and and actually the lack of remembering, I guess, is what it says. I don't really think it's about the lack of remembering. I think it's about the lack of education. I think, unfortunately, parents have really abnegated their responsibility to teach their children well, as the song goes, and have left it to teachers. And teachers are really, really overwhelmed by all of the educating that they have to do. Luckily, here in Massachusetts, we have Facing History, which does a really good job going into the schools and teaching kids about the consequences of discrimination and scapegoating. I note that you noted that in the Hebrew Bible is repeated remembering 200 times. The note to remember is 200 times. So it should be a central part of making sure that this story gets told. That's true. But I think remembering is only one part of it. I think teaching that what you do every day is as important as remembering. Okay. That's Helen Epstein. Her book is Francie's War, A Woman's Story of Survival. To you, Sylvia Ruth Gutman, are you concerned about the resurgence of anti-Semitism in the country and around the world? I don't think it's a resurgence. I, I don't think it ever goes away. Hmm. But what I am concerned with very much is, and this is what I tell the young people because they are my hope, that they put more love in the world, that they, it's about the other. It's always been and will always be about the other, which is why I am so drawn to the refugee children, the migrant children that have been separated from their parents and are forced to live in cages. And I want, I am their voice because I had no voice and they have no voice. And I hope all I do every time I'm invited to a school is tell the young people, to be aware of pointing out the other, that we're all the other, that we're all the same, 
that we all have one God. This is my mission. Thank you for that, Sylvia. Bernice, what would you add to this? And your mother is still alive. I wonder if you can speak for her in this instance, too, about her concerns about the resurgence of anti-Semitism. I don't, I don't know that she would say it's a resurgence like Sylvia. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, she's very upset um, when she sees things or reads the news. It's almost, it's not surprising. But I think that, I think that not only our students need to learn, but often their parents too. Their parents don't know. Their parents just don't know. I think that when my mother speaks to groups of kids, the docents often say. Children, you're witnesses to a witness. Go home and tell your parents because they might not know. But one of the ways I think, one of the things I tried to do in my book to add my small piece is to lift a heroic figure into bold relief, somebody who had no real particular stake in it, who wasn't Jewish, this liberator. Because I think we need, we need through story, like we need exemplars of virtue. We need exemplars of people who display empathy and courage to inspire people. So I think people are hungry for those kind of stories. The more they read, the better the repertoire of resources they have to draw upon when they have to make decisions in their whole life, in their life, their personal life, how to treat the other. Because Glenn Hughes was that when I discovered, when I read more and more about him, read his writings, I discovered how he was so different from other British officials and how he saw the sacred human person in the skeletal human being who really was reduced to less than a, less than a human being and what he did to try to save people's lives. So, yeah, so that's what I think. I think we need to teach through story. Well, thank you all for teaching through story in this moment, because all of your stories are very powerful. Your books are very powerful. I hope that people get the full stories. You've only just touched a bit here in this conversation with me, but I so appreciate your joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Helen Epstein is a journalist, author, and editor of her late mother's memoir, Francie's War, A Woman's Story of Survival. Bernice Lerner is a senior scholar at Boston University's Center for Character and Social Responsibility and author of All the Horrors of War, A Jewish Girl, A British Doctor, and the Liberation of Bergen-Belsen. And Sylvia Ruth Gutman, public speaker and author of her memoir, A Life Rebuilt, The Remarkable Transformation of a War Orphan. Coming up, coronavirus fears are keeping many people from seeking answers to other health questions. But now questioners can get guidance through a new telehealth app. Boston-based Nurse 11 is providing online connections. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. 
Anxiety is running high during the coronavirus pandemic. Is that cough of yours a threatening symptom or just spring allergies? And what if you need medical attention for problems unrelated to COVID-19, but want to stay safe by remaining socially distant? For thousands of patients, the solution is a click away. Use of telemedicine has seen a surge during the pandemic, which has also led to increased interest in a local startup. Joining me remotely, Michael Sheely, co-founder and CEO of Nurse One One, a telehealth app that allows users to message a nurse within seconds. Welcome, Michael. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you. Also with me, Amy Rose Taylor, adult gerontology nurse practitioner, nurse for Nurse One One, and author of Nursing School 101 and The Rebel Nurse Handbook. Hi, Amy. Hi, it's great to be here today. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to have both of you. Let me put some context on this. This month, as it happens, we're acknowledging National Nurse Week, but the World Health Organization has named 2020 the Year of the Nurse and the Midwife in honor of the 200th birth anniversary of Florence Nightingale. And I think it's fair to say that we are paying way more attention to nurses than we might have prior to this pandemic because they're on the, the front lines. I want to give a sense of just how we're seeing nurses mostly these days. Here's a clip from the National Nurses United protest last week in Washington, D.C., calling attention to the healthcare workers lacking personal protective equipment. In the richest nation on the face of the earth, the White House, Congress, the CDC, OSHA, and the hospital industry have condemned nurses to death and illness. Instead of being places of healing, hospitals have also become places of infection. And the United States government has let this happen right now. The CDC is telling hospitals that it is recommended that they only provide us with bandanas, scarves, or surgical masks. Because OSHA has refused to do its job to protect the occupational health and safety of nurses and other frontline healthcare workers, the government is in effect telling hospitals that it is okay if we get sick and it is okay if we die. So that's from the National Nurses United protest because the issue of personal protection equipment is still ongoing, as we know. But what I think a number of people do not know is that there's been a shift for those people who are not going to the hospital, who are seeking uh, answers to their questions on demand, literally through telemedicine. I should note that in Massachusetts, Governor Baker, in his executive order, the stay-at-home advisory, also made it possible for lots of people to have access to the kind of video conferencing, phone chats, or whatever that make up telehealth. And that he also put together a partnership with a company called Doctor On Demand with the Commonwealth, which is also an app uh, for people who might want to reach out to doctors by the same kinds of means, electronic means. And so that comes brings me to you, Michael Sheely, because before the pandemic, you were already working, putting together Nurse One One, because you saw the vision, I guess. Yeah, you know, I, I think as as the world has turned to, to digital care, um, you know, we, we really quickly realized that there was a gap between, you know, understanding all the different digital options that are out there and knowing where to turn to for care. And, and it really started when my daughter was born with a heart defect. And, you know, we live in Boston and Boston Children's Hospital is such a large brand. And, you know, we brought our daughter there for a heart surgery at three months old. But when we brought her home, my wife and I having no medical background, 
uh, ourselves, we went to the you know Google basically to search and figure out where we should take her to care when she had a temperature or a rash, and we really just scared ourselves and didn't know what option was right for us. And it just turned out we had a friend Kim, who is a nurse and happened to also have worked at Boston Children's Hospital, and said, you know, why don't you just text me before you you go online and. You know, I'm not part of the care team, but I will let you know where you should turn to for care. And that was really the core of what we were doing was when people are scared and worried and they don't know where to turn to, uh, you know, having this trusted conversation with a nurse who has care and empathy and can understand your situation was really a, a game changer for us. And so we wanted to build a platform that would allow anybody to have access to a nurse, not just somebody who happens to live next door to a, a, a nurse like Kim. Well, as I said, there are many varieties of telemedicine. How does Nurse 11 work specifically? Yeah, it, you know, what we see ourselves is sort of that step before telemedicine. There's a lot of different telemedicine options out there. There's a lot of other types of solutions out there online. What we always see is that there's a step before a video visit with a doctor on all these different options that are out there where you can go and have a text conversation uh, on Nurse 11 with a nurse. It's a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Uh, all you need to do is enter in your email address and your first name. And we don't even care if you use a, a, a wrong first name. You can put in whatever you want. The, the idea is that we want to give you a connection with a nurse who can help you decide where you should go to for care. Is, is a video visit even right for you before you pay a large amount of money to sign up and schedule an appointment on, on any one of these video visit type of sites? Where we see ourselves is a platform where you go to to find out even if that's right for you. Mm -hmm. So Amy Rose Taylor, you are an adult gerontology nurse practitioner normally in life. This is a, a part-time job for you working with Nurse 11. So a text comes to you. What happens next? So um, when I am not seeing patients during my, my regular role, at that point in time, I'll log into Nurse 11 and, and set my availability so that I would be able to get text messages. Um, my phone will ping that there's uh, somebody waiting. I will click on and they'll come into the, the chat room with me. And at that point in time, you know, I'll usually start with, you know, how can I help you today? I get a little bit of demographic information. I have a rough idea of how old they are. I have a rough idea of what the problem might end up being. And we start talking about, you know, what it is that's concerning them, that's, that's bringing them to want to ask a nurse today. You know, and to speak to Michael's point about a step before seeing a provider, the same way when you go into a doctor's office, very often you'll meet with your nurse first, and she'll get a chance to take your vital signs and, and ask you a little bit of questions about, you know, well, what brings you into the office today? You know, even sometimes when you're being triaged in the hospital, you come into the emergency room, and the first face you're going to end up seeing is always going to be your nurse. And she's going to ask you, well, why are you here? What are your symptoms? What's going on and what's, what's happening? And from there, the nurse becomes a very valuable part of the interdisciplinary care team, providing that feedback, their insights, their assessments to the provider and, and allowing them to help direct you know, the best and most appropriate care possible for that, that patient. And that's the same thing that we're doing here in Nurse 11, that we are, are assessing our patients virtually, asking the right questions and providing that kind of very important, very needed feedback before then giving them, you know, our best 
suggestions, advice, and evidence-based reasoning for why they should be either you know, staying home and treating with over-the-counter medications, going to see their provider, going to urgent care, and sometimes even going to the hospital. So what kinds of questions are people, just give me a, a sense of the variety of kinds of questions you're being confronted with. Nurse Amy Rose Taylor. Well, we actually get to see all kinds of different questions that'll come through. And that's been the most surprising thing for me as a, a nurse on Nurse One One. I have absolutely gotten a ton of questions and concerns and, and you know, very fearful people, you know, who read things on online or heard in the news about a new possible coronavirus symptom and is this what I'm seeing and is this what's happening? But I'm also getting to talk to a number of different patients across the nation who are very nervous and very concerned because, well, normally they'd be going in to get their medication refilled, but they're worried about going to see the doctor right now because they feel that if they go into the office, then they might catch coronavirus too. Uh, Michael, in fact, Michael Sheely, co-founder and CEO of Nurse One One, that has really been driving your business. People would assume that so many of the calls to the nurses now would really be about COVID-19, but a lot of them are really about other stuff because they don't want to go into the to the doctor's office or the hospital. Yeah, and, and that that is really at the core of what what we're building here at Nurse One One is a platform for anybody, no matter what your concern is, is to figure out where you should turn to for care. Uh, and, and, you know, when the outbreak first started, we had a, a big spike of questions that were about COVID. But then as the, you know, the lockdown started, as primary care offices shut down, as people became worried to go to uh, the hospital or to go to a clinic, you know, we started seeing an increase in a whole bunch of other types of concerns uh, that people just didn't know where to turn to for, for help. And it's that trusted voice of a nurse that people want to turn to, you know, not to get a prescription or a diagnosis, but to know, should I go to the doctor's office? Should I go to the urgent care clinic with this right now? Or is this something that, you know, maybe I should be turning to the emergency room for? And and it's, it's really seeing these conversations on our platform where people are connecting with nurses that just purely care about these patients. Uh, you know, that's really, that's really the core of what we're building at Nurse 1-1. So when you say that someone can text in and get this information, one of my first thoughts was around security because there's so much security around health records. People are not divulging their whole health history. They're trying to get a situational answer, as I'm gathering from both you and Nurse Amy Rose Taylor? That's definitely the case. Um, mm -hmm. Due to federal privacy regulations, very often, you know, we don't know where this person is located. If I recommend to them that they should be going to an urgent care through the system, I don't get to actually see the listing of urgent care clinics that are near them. Only the, the patient who is utilizing the system gets to have access to that information. But having to go ahead and identify what the problem is and, and figure it out from a very limited source of information is kind of really what nurses excel at to begin with. You know, very often when we're meeting a patient for the very first time, whether it's in a clinic or a hospital or an office or sometimes even the community setting, we don't have all those types of, of records and files and documents available to us. And so it really does behoove the nurse to be able to go ahead and know which questions to ask and ask the right ones to identify you know, what the, the problem most likely is going to be and then craft our advice to meet that specific need. 
So it seems to me, Michael Shealy, that even though you started your company before the COVID-19 crisis really kicked off, you're at a moment, a fortuitous moment, for a couple of reasons. First of all, we've talked about people's fears about going into the hospital. And the fears were so intense in Massachusetts, or have been, right, and I guess to some extent continue to be, that actually they had to address it at one of Governor Charlie Baker's uh, updates last month. This is Greg Meyer. He's the chief clinical officer at the Partners Healthcare System, speaking at one of the governor's updates. For those of you who might be wary of visiting a hospital during these anxious times, let me assure you, Massachusetts hospitals are open for business. We have the beds. We have the physicians, we have the nurses, we have the specialists, we have the resources to treat you. Now, I wanted to play that because I did not know until very recently that a lot of hospitals are laying off all workers, doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals, and that the hospitals had actually suffered quite a hit from people not feeling comfortable going in to ask the kinds of questions that apparently you all are now seeing on Nurse 11. When did you become aware that the impact on the hospitals was actually going to drive traffic to your app, Michael Shealy? Yeah, we, we saw it right away. Uh, and, and I think really that's the key part of what we've built at Nurse 11 is when people are afraid, you know, now they're afraid to go to the hospital. The ability for a nurse to understand that patient's particular situation, to understand what's driving that patient to have different concerns, uh, to really understand their situation is what the key that we've seen a lot of these nurses be able to, to, to relate to these patients and then to influence them and get them to understand that when they do feel ill, that it is important that they still go to the doctor that they do make a phone call, that they do visit the emergency room when they need to go. Uh, we saw that right away during the outbreak. And, and you know, as a, as a parent of two, two children, we also have that same experience when one of our kids is sick. Mm. What do we do? Do we bring them to the emergency room and, and potentially expose our kids or ourselves uh, to, to coronavirus? And, you know, the, the ability to reach out to one of our nurses and ask them, you know, should we go for this concern? And, and to have that reinforcement from a nurse that, you know, has been doing this for at least five years, that is in most cases a nurse practitioner, uh, be able to tell us that, you know, you should go to the emergency room, that these, these hospitals are open for business for conditions just like yours, for the situations just like yours. That's really what, what the core of Nurse 11 is. And, and we saw that right from the beginning of the outbreak, that sort of the, the conversation switched from, I'm about to go to the emergency room for something I shouldn't, to mm. the conversations being more about, you know, these are the concerns, real concerns that I have, and then having the nurses actually influence people to make sure that they're still seeking care for the things they should be getting care for. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Michael Sheely, co-founder and CEO of Nurse 11, and Amy Rose Taylor, adult gerontology nurse practitioner and nurse for Nurse 11. We're discussing telemedicine services during the coronavirus pandemic. So that was one of the driving factors. The other one is now outside of your app, but just telemedicine visits have gone through the roof. I note that Doctors on Demand, which I mentioned earlier, had partnered with uh, the Commonwealth, has seen a nearly 200 percent spike in visits through telemedicine, which is fairly amazing, which leads me to the second part, Amy Rose Taylor, which is that I'm imagining now people reaching out to you are much more comfortable in a texting 
telemedicine, telehealth situation than they might have been even, let's say, two months ago? Absolutely. And the other part that I'm also seeing is some of that intergenerational uh, work with telehealth, telemedicine. It's not uncommon for me to get a message saying, hi, I logged on as me, but I'm really asking questions about my 72-year-old father. I'm really worried about, and then they'll go into whatever their concerns are. Or they'll say, now, this really isn't for me. It's for my husband, but he needs to know, is it important for him to go and, and be seen by the doctor or go to the, the follow-up. I do have the ability through the app not only to recommend local urgent cares or local hospitals for those patients, but I also have the ability to refer them immediately to a virtual provider who has the ability to treat through telehealth, and through telemedicine, a number of different types of conditions. And so part of what I do is also ascertaining, is it more important that this person be physically seen at this moment you know, do you need to have a provider get a chance to listen to their heart and lungs? Do they need to be able to run tests? Should there be blood work done? Or is this the type of a concern that can also be addressed through telehealth and tele- telemedicine and then refer to the individual to the appropriate area? You know, Amy Rose Taylor, what's interesting about how life changes in a moment or in two months, as it, as it were, um, previous to this year, the, the federal government, its Health Resources and Services Administration, had projected a nursing shortage. In fact, that's all I used to hear about. There's a nursing shortage, there's a nursing shortage, there's a nursing shortage. By this year, 2020 was the, was the year that they were concerned about a nursing shortage. But, you know, I know this is anecdotal. It seems to me that that's all changing. Now, of course, they're also projecting that there may be a surplus by 2025, which is, as you know, not that far from here. But in this moment, nurses are playing a very key, pivotal role. And if there is a shortage, are you seeing it in your other world? And and what does that mean as we go forward? Because obviously there's been a lot more attention to people seeking care at this level, at the level that you're giving it through Nurse One One. So I certainly agree that there is going to be a shortage of nurses. There's a whole batch of different reasons that play into that, partially based off of how we've been traditionally hiring and recruiting nurses, both internally through the United States as well as externally through some countries that will traditionally come over here to, to practice as well. There's a unbelievable need for nursing educators to be able to go mm-hmm. ahead and, and provide that next generation the information that they so require to be able to, to fill these roles. And then we also have a major issue of nursing burnout, where we have more new graduates leave the bedside in five years than in any other profession. So there's a a number of factors, and you could probably do a whole other show based off of the the nursing shortage itself. But, you know, do I see it on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely. You know, we we definitely are seeing a need for more nurses, and we see a need for for more care um, across the spectrum. A big part of that has to do with our aging population. We have more than 10,000 baby boomers that are turning 65 every single day. We have a couple of states in the union where currently we actually have more seniors than we do younger people that are living there. And that's only going to continue as our baby boomers continue to age and continue to require more medical care. And so, yeah, it's definitely something that's very prevalent. But I think for the first time ever, especially in this pandemic, especially seeing the unbelievable care and sacrifice and the gifts that these nurses have been providing of themselves, of their abilities, of their time, of their compassion to so many needing and deserving individuals. Now, I think for the first time ever, people are going to start to recognize how valuable our nurses are and start to recognize them as such. 
nurses have been considered to be the most trusted profession in the United States for more than 18 years in a row. And that's something that we're really proud of and something that I'm sure is going to continue. At this moment, the World Health Organization notes that worldwide, uh, nurses make up the largest occupational group in the health sector, accounting for approximately 59 percent of health professionals. So, so there is that. Michael Sheely, what is the cost of Nurse 1-1? I note that for the expanded programs under Massachusetts and what Governor Baker has done, a lot of that access to telehealth is free through other partnerships or through what the state is now funding. But, you know, if you're just not a part of that and you're calling in, this has a cost. So will insurance pick it up? What's happening there? Yeah, our goal is to to make sure that Nurse 1-1 can be free for all patients. The way that we are doing that is through partnerships ourselves. So we're, we're partnering with organizations who have the incentive to make sure that patients are getting the best experience. Uh, a lot of these partnerships that we're building with now are other digital health companies. Mm-hmm. So we have one partnership in particular that, that we launched during this outbreak with a company called ZocDoc. And ZocDoc is a website where you can go and book uh, appointments at doctor's offices and specialists as well as video visit type of visits. And what we did with that partnership is if you go to their website right now, you can chat with one of our nurses for free. And they're incentivized to do that because they want the engagement. They want to make sure that patients are being able to seek care during this time, even if their doctor's office is closed. And so those are that's a, an example of a partnership that allows Nurse 11 to be free. If anyone goes to nurse11.com directly, it only costs $12.50 to have a conversation with a nurse that's much cheaper than traditional telemedicine, which could be $50 to $100. And then also the other part of this is that even if it's free for the patient, there's still a cost to the system. And that can only last so long of making it free to everybody. Uh, The insurance companies are paying for it. The states are paying for it. And what we offer on the other side when we make these partnerships is that it's only $12.50 when one of these patients uses Nurse on One. We're able to do this because we have a network of 1,000 nurses. We're able to do this because we're not providing care. We're not writing prescriptions. So a lot of the expensive parts of telemedicine, of having doctors on the platform, of, of you know having a limited number of providers on a telemedicine platform so that you have to incentivize these doctors to be on one platform versus the other, because we're giving information and we're just empowering the patient to decide where they want to go for care, it allows our costs to be much cheaper than uh, traditional telemedicine. One of the things that I should mention is that telemedicine still is kind of different in all of the locations around the country. I don't know that a place has best practices at this point because all of the rules and laws about how it can be accessed and executed are different in each state. So because there's so much interest now driven by the COVID-19 particularly, there's going to have to be a lot of movement, I think, regulatory-wise to make this a situation where people could access you from anywhere. I mean, I know they do now, but I mean, it won't be such a deal to figure out if that's how you can respond to them because they're from a different state with other kinds of rules and regulations. 
Yeah, the, the regulations are, are changing very quickly. Even in telemedicine, uh, before this outbreak, there were regulations that prevented a doctor from doing a video visit with a patient in another state if they're not licensed in, those, in that state. And so those regulations are opening up. You know, one of the benefits that we have with over a thousand nurses on our platform is that we get to become very selective with which nurses are on our platform. So almost all of them are nurse practitioners. They have five years of experience. But then we can also route patients to nurses who have a specialty in what their concern is. So if it's a pediatrics question, we only will route that patient to a nurse whose specialty is pediatrics. And, and so, you know, the more nurses that we have on our platform, the more we're able to route these patients to the right nurse. And that means that, you know, maybe if you're in Massachusetts, maybe the best nurse for you to talk to is somebody that's actually in California right now. And, you know, maybe it's late at night and the nurses in the East Coast are asleep, but on the West Coast, they're still awake. So there's a lot of benefits to opening up these regulations and, and, and basically making it so that people have better access to care. So final question to you, Amy Rose Taylor. As I said, people, we regular folks are, are more comfortable now trying to access this kind of information and people, professionals like you, through this kind of setup. But how do you feel? How is this? Is it very different from your normal face-to-face -face interaction? Because as we know, this is going to be the way I think most people try to reach out to their healthcare providers more than ever after the COVID-19 crisis ends. So in my, in my regular nine to five, I operate as an adult gerontology nurse practitioner, which means that I have the ability to independently diagnose, manage, and treat my patients, which is very different from my role as a nurse with Nurse 1-1. Operating underneath the scope of practice as a nurse, I'm providing evidence-based reasoning, guidance, and advice. I'm not diagnosing, I'm not managing, I'm not treating, I'm not prescribing. That's really telemedicine. What we're doing here is telehealth. We are using our skills, our talents, and our abilities to be able to offer you know, the best possible guidance to these patients who are coming to us with some very critical, very important, and very needed questions. This is a wonderful opportunity, though, to demonstrate how the value of a nurse, the education, the skills, the talents, and most importantly, the trust that we've worked to build with our patients has been able to be so beneficial to so many in need at this time. So I certainly stay very optimistic. You know, in this year of the nurse and the midwife, I think that this is an excellent opportunity for us to be able to continue to look forward to new opportunities to grow, change, and continue to build our relationship with our other care providers as a part of a healthcare team. Well, thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having me. Michael Sheely is the co-founder and CEO of Nurse One One. Amy Rose Taylor is an adult gerontology nurse practitioner, nurse for Nurse 1-1, and author of Nursing School 101 and The Rebel Nurse Handbook. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org News, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubele, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.